I remember the first few years after I first got saved. I never will forget whenever the Word of God began to have impact in my life. I don't know what your salvation experience was. For some people, it's just a moment of going from unbelief to belief. And that's what it is. At one point, you are not trusting in Jesus Christ for your sins and for the eternal life that He promises. And then, through the providence of God, you do so. So it is that simple. But the way it's manifested in each one's life is different. It's not all the same, isn't it? Well, when I got saved, it was a result of me spending a great deal of time in the Word of God. That's why I love the Word of God. And I'm so glad that the Lord called me to a church that loves the Word of God. So thankful for that. Because it is the means that the Holy Spirit uses to change us. It's just marvelous. To the degree in which we are engaged in the Word of God is to the degree in which you and I have a thriving fellowship with the Lord. And I remember those first few months and weeks after receiving eternal life, there was a lot of change going on, going on in my perspective, in the affections that I had, the way I looked at life. And I never will forget that the Lord began through the Holy Spirit and through reading His Word to put His finger on certain aspects of my life that I knew that He wanted me to pay attention to. One of those were, was my, my language. I come out of the military, and usually you couldn't do too many sentences in a row without having a cuss word somewhere in there. Has anybody else experienced that? It was just the nomenclature of life for us men. But whenever the Holy Spirit began to grab hold of me in that area, it was very clear, and I, I couldn't even really talk. I'd go to say something that I didn't want to cuss. It was, you know, and I'd have to make up words and just to try to... Try to obey the unction of the Holy Spirit. I remember that at that time I was working for an electronics industry and I used to go out with them and we used to go out and go to bars and play around and get involved in things we shouldn't get involved in. But whenever the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of my heart and my life and I began to take the Word of God seriously, those desires began to wane. Have you guys ever experienced that? How it just wasn't as much fun anymore. And then I remember the last few times that I went out, it was only for the purpose of just sort of appeasing my friends because I was kind of like, ah, I didn't really have any other friends. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things. But I never will forget one day I was inside the garage um, of the shop and they said, hey, John, you want to go out with us? We're going to do this and go out there. And they knew I'd become a Christian. They had seen the fruit in my life. And I was just like, no, I'm not going to go. And they say, oh, John, you can go. You can come and just let down your hair. I remember them saying that. Let down your hair and just have some fun. God's not going to kill you just because of the fact that you decide to go to the bar. And I remember just sitting there thinking just as clear as day. I, I'm not, you know, I would not have any fun. It's not like I'm just going and I'm, I'm holding back the desire. You know, I really want to go because I think I'm going to have fun. They didn't really get it that I just didn't have that desire anymore. It was just I would have not enjoyed myself. Isn't that marvelous how the Word of God works in that life? I think many of you have experienced that as well. I remember beginning to recognize that the Lord, He owns everything. And there was somebody, I had a pickup truck, and it was kind of a nice pickup truck. I've been kind of a pickup truck guy my whole life. 
And somebody asked me to borrow my truck to help him move, and I had to work, so I couldn't let he drive it for him. And so I agreed to let him drive it. And I never will forget, um, this was before the days of cell phone, you know, after writing on stone, but before the day of <laughs> cell phones. I remember he, he pulls up and tells me, uh, John, I got some bad news for you. He goes, yeah, I wrecked your truck. And I'm like, I thought he was kidding, right? I thought he was joking. I'm like, oh man, be quiet. You didn't wreck my truck. And sure enough, I go out there. It was a big old huge on the back uh, rear quarter panel. It was a big old, here's my truck. And I just remember instantly in my heart, the Lord was like, it wasn't your truck, it's my truck. And this guy, he had no money. He was living paycheck to paycheck. And I just said, man, don't even worry about it. It's not even my truck. But I just remember those years of driving, I may have mentioned before, going down the road and the Lord tells you to obey the laws of the land. The scripture says that, right? Obey the laws of the land, that, they, that the government authorities is God's wrath against evildoers. So we're to obey God's uh, authorities. And I remember trying to drive the speed limit. I was that sensitive, right? Your heart just gets real sensitive to the things of God. And, and more important is I feared God. It was a fear of God that I had. And it's a funny thing about the fear of God is that I've, you know, as I was, as I was preparing for this message, I kind of bit off more than I can chew, really. When you think about talking about the fear of God, oh my goodness. It's an awesome responsibility to teach on that. But as I began to sort of research things, it seems like there's, there's a big push out there that they're trying to get people not to fear God. They say, oh, you shouldn't fear God. It's about reverence. And they, they try to go through that and massage that for our contemporary audience. And I understand that. We don't want them to get the wrong idea. They, don't, they say, you shouldn't fear God. You should reverence God. I'm like, no, 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 no. There's fear involved there. I mean, you think about electricity coming out of the wall, you know, we're okay, we're cavalier with it, we, we can use it, it's marvelous, it produces all kinds of wonderful things in our lives, and we have it contained and everything, but I tell you, if you walk up there and you stick a screwdriver in the hole of that thing, all of that power becomes to bear right through your body, to, through the bottom of your shoes, and you begin to find out that that is something to be respected because it has potential for enormous power, but it's also something for good, and that's the same thing for the fear of God, is that... The fear of God is always helpful. It does two things. It's either going to hopefully restrain evil, the fear of God, which is okay. That's a biblical thing, to restrain evil. But you're afraid that you're going to get it if you do it. There's nothing wrong with that. God does deter us with fear of retribution. But on the other hand, too, there is a certain amount of fear that is generated by love like the child has towards a father. Your father's bigger and stronger and more powerful, but you love him, but you don't mess with him. And that's the kind of idea is that the fear of God is always helpful. It just depends on what side of that you want to be on. Do you want to be on the negative side of that to where the power of God is going to implicate itself into your life in such a way that it's very discomforting? Or do you want to be on the great side of that to where the fear that you have of God drives you to love Him and respect Him and desire to be with Him even more so? God will take it either way, but that's the nature of, of Him. Now, last week we talked about the fear of man. This week we touched, last week we also touched on the fear of God just a little bit. But I want to go ahead and, uh, let me get this going here just a second. 
I want to go ahead and There we go. I'm going to go ahead and we're going to revisit the, the fear of God definition that we used last week. So I don't know if this is working, but we'll try to see what that is. Preach. Yeah, there we go. Great. So we decided that the fear of God in the context in which we were talking about it last week is the motivation, right? It's the motivation behind one's inclination to trust the opinions, desires, values, preferences, agendas, and purposes of God above those of another person or a group. That it's this motivation behind it. Is that we, at some point, for whatever reason, we fool ourselves or we're influenced into such a way that we think that going man's way is better than going God's way. That listening to man is better than listening to God. That somehow acquiescing to what man wants to do is better than us being diligent to the things that God's called us to do. That that is... The fear of God is that we preference him above all these other areas of our life. And so the fear of God depends on our perspective, on our orientation to God. It's either going to be a good thing or it's going to be a bad thing in our life. And so the book that we're going to be looking at that best describes this is going to be the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, in my study of this, I found out that the fear of God, or some derivative of that term, is used over 300 times in the Bible. And it's used almost 100 times just in the book of Deuteronomy. The fear of the Lord. So think about that. Of all the 66 books of the Bible, you have the fear of God 300 times, but a third of them are in the book of Deuteronomy. And so what I wanted us to do is, because the book of Deuteronomy is not often a book that is very familiar with a lot of people, and also too, is it's a very unique genre. I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. I want to kind of turn to the book of genre. We're going to be in chapter 10, but in order for us to understand what's going on in chapter 10, we have to understand what's going on in chapters what? One through what? Nine. So if you would, go ahead and turn to the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm going to give you a little background on the book itself. So the book of Deuteronomy is a re-giving of the Mosaic law to the offspring of those Hebrews who came out of Egypt. You may remember that their parents, in spite of the unprecedented power and the destruction that Yahweh had unleashed on the most powerful nation of the world, the Egyptians, and in spite of the awesome encounter that they had with God at Mount Sinai, they still refused to go into the promised land because of fear and unbelief. You guys remember that? And in response, God declared that they would spend the rest of their days roaming around in the wilderness, eating manna until they all died off. And that's exactly what happens. It sounds like a pretty boring existence to me. I mean, thinking about that. Ultimately, only Caleb, Joshua, and those who were 20 years and under ended up persevering until it was time to go into the promised land. And so the book of Deuteronomy is written by Moses, and this generation is now standing before Moses, and they are listening to him explain the conditions upon which Yahweh was offering to re-engage them into the Mosaic Covenant. If they were going to walk with God in the Promised Land and be the recipients of His divine favor and all of the things that come with that, 
his presence among all the nations and everything else, then they would have to commit themselves to Yahweh and to his ways. So our focus is going to be in chapter 10, but for the sake of understanding how we get to the point of chapter 10, we're going to read, start in 1, 1 and read all the way through nine chapters and get to 10. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do it. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. But for the sake of context, it is imperative that you and I briefly summarize the earlier chapters of the book of Deuteronomy because it is everything that come, it, because it becomes before everything that comes from chapter 10, and it's very important to understand chapter 10. So before I need to do, I do that, I need to explain something about the book of Deuteronomy. It's a little bit different of a genre. In the Bible, it's really a book of books. It has all kinds of different genres, and the way you interpret the book is going to be determined according to the genre. And so we're going to interpret the book of Revelation in a little different way than we're going to interpret Paul's epistles, right? We're going to interpret the, the historical books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're going to come to that with a lens that's modified a bit from the way in which we would perhaps study the book of Psalms, which is poetry. Well, Deuteronomy is a, is a, unique, a unique type of genre. And it's, we often read it as if it's normal narrative, but it's not. It's written... In, instead in a type of genre called the Caesarean Vassal Treaty. Caesarean Vassal Treaty. So this was a treaty. It's, a, it's really, a, it's a contract. It's a law contract. The genre was common in the ancient Near East when a king conquered another nation and delivered its people from the captors. Then what would happen is that the king would write up this Caesarean Vassal Treaty document, and it was a legally binding document in which the king would offer it to the people. He was the one who overtook or overthrew the oppressive king of that world, of that land, and so the people had a choice on whether or not they were going to enter into a relationship with this new king. And so this is written all over the ancient Near East, and the book of Deuteronomy is written in the same format. It's written in the Caesarean Vassal Treaty format, and it's basically a legal document and contract. Anybody who would have read this, or who are from the ancient Near Eastern, they would have recognized the general flow of that letter. And so it is an ancient document that does that. However, because it's from Yahweh, it does have some unique differences to it. But all of the major headlines are there for that. And so the king makes certain promises, and when the people would agree and enter into the covenant with the king, then, the, then there would be an agreement. So the king would, would, would tell them, I'm going to offer you this. I'm going to offer you food and grain for this many years, and as a result, you're not going to go and make alliances with other kings. You're not going to take their idols and lift them up and put them in your own temple. This was something that was very common during this period of time. And it's broadly represented in the ancient Near East. So just keep that in mind um, when you next time you read the book of Deuteronomy. So in the chapters prior to, to chapter 10, Moses reminds Israel of the historical basis for the fear of God. That's what this book is about, is how to maintain covenant loyalty with Yahweh. Your ancestors failed. They did not do it. How... What are the conditions? What are the terms? Remember, the people that he's talking to had been slaves their whole life. They didn't understand anything about the modern world. 
And so he is laying out for them a plan to go forward for them to represent the king, to represent him as Yahweh in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to the rest of the world. And so there is this agreement that they would have understood based upon their context of how it was written. And so Moses reminds Israel of the historical basis for the fear of God, and then he warns them about the attitudes that would lead them to no longer fear the Lord in this document. So not only he says, this is the basis for me requiring this of you, and these are the warnings I give you because of the fact that there is probably going to be a time where you're going to forget about me. You're going to forget about all of the miracles that I've done. You're going to forget about what I did for you in Egypt. But I want you to remember that I told you so. He says, I want you to read this day and night to your kids. I want you to put it above your doorpost. I want you to attach it to your heart, to the frontal part of your head. I want you to, to hold on to it because this is your life. To the degree in which you obey this is going to be how well you do in the land. And so briefly, notice in chapter one through three that Moses gives Israel a reminder of the historical basis for the fear of God. The historical basis for the fear of God. Now, I don't have this in your, out, in your notes. You'll have to write this in yourself. So we'll go for that. So in these chapters that Moses... In chapters 1 through 3, Moses is just simply recapping the events that God had accomplished for them in, um, in the desert. He was just recapping. He's just summarizing, this is what I did for you. Remember, you were in bondage to this king. I went in with the plagues. I went in and I destroyed that king and I pulled you out of there and I saved you. And the only thing that you had to do was put the blood above the doorpost. So I did that. I saved you. I came and rescued you from the most powerful nation in the world. He recounts the events surrounding Mount Sinai, about how once they got through the Red Sea, they go to the Mount Sinai and their disobedience at Kadesh Barnea. So those first three chapters are talking about just giving an account of the history God has with this people. Because remember, this is the offspring of those who came out of Egypt. So their disobedience at Kadesh Barnea was something that was a turning point. And the way God had protected them in their travels through the land of Seir, which is Edom, God had protected them all through this. He had protected them whenever they went through the land of the Amorites and he went through the land of Moab. He's just discount. He's just counting down. These are what I've done for you. This is the basis for you to fear me is because of what I did to the most powerful nation in the world. What I did at Mount Sinai. You guys remember what you saw there and what you felt and what you heard and you remember. So he's just counting it down for them. That's the first part of that a document. So next in chapters four through eight, Moses warns them of the attitudes that lead to losing the fear of God. So first three chapters are really just giving an account of how God had helped them. And then chapters four through the rest of nine, these chapters called them to a renewed commitment to Yahweh's law by restating the 10 commandments. You remember what happened whenever they came down, whenever Moses and Joshua came down from the, from the mountain the first time, what were the people doing? Do you guys remember? They were partying, partying and they, they had made a calf. Aaron had made a calf. And it was so angry that the, the laws of God that he had given Moses were broken. And God ends up making new laws. Well, this here is a time where God is going to set down and he's going to re-give the law to that original nation. He had given them the law before and they had agreed to obey it. And then they went into apostasy. They disobeyed God in Kadesh Barnea. They were forbidden from going into the promised land. These are their kids now who are standing on the precipice of going into the promised land and they're going, now here's the law again. Deuteronomy, it's what it means, the re-giving of the law. Here it is. 
We're going to try this one more time and go forward with there. And so these are the very same commandments that their parents had um, committed themselves to and then reneged on at Mount Sinai. In 8.11, if you turn there and you want to learn, Moses repeatedly warns this new generation that was poised to go into the promised land to not forget all that God did for them back in the desert. And in effect, he says that when you finally do enter the land and you find yourself, quote, enjoying the large cities you did not build, the houses filled with things you did not buy, when you're enjoying that, whenever you're enjoying the cisterns that you did not dig, and whenever you're enjoying the vineyards and the olive trees that you did not plant, don't forget your God, Israel. Don't forget that I was the one who brought this to you. When you have those things, don't forget about your God. That is easy to do when things are going well, isn't it? Is it not? I'm taken back at how easy it can be for us to coast in our zeal for the Lord when things are going well, when you're not diagnosed with cancer, when your kids are following the Lord, whenever the schedule of your job is very cooperative with the recreation that you want to have, whenever you don't have some kind of debilitating addiction that you're dealing with, Things go well when the bank is full. When you have a little bit of margin in your finances, don't forget how God sustained you when it was paycheck to paycheck. I remember Denise and I being poorer than dirt, literally living from paycheck to paycheck. When you are finally enjoying the benefits of earning that degree or certification or that training, don't forget how I got you through those long hours of study. Don't forget that you needed me when that exam came, that you knew you were going to fail and I was there. Don't forget about me whenever you do pass it and you do get that bar exam completed. Don't remember, I was there for you. Whenever you're there and you're making all the big bucks and you're on television and you're famous, don't forget about small Trinity Fellowship. Don't forget about God, right? It's so easy when things go well for us to forget about God. He knows what's going on. When you go home to that husband or wife or that family that loves you, don't forget how the Lord was right beside you, sustaining you through the earlier days of desperation and loneliness. He was there. Remember how he continually listened to your pleadings and your prayers for him to bring you a spouse who would love you and call you their own. And whenever you're laying there beside them, don't forget the Lord. He was there for you. He answered your prayer. Don't forget he answered your prayer. Don't forget me, God would say, when things are going well in the land for you and many days have accumulated in between the time of your original need and the days of your prosperity, don't forget me, God would say. Because things are going to get better. Right now, it looks rough. And yes, you're all excited about obeying me and doing what I want, but things get easier. And I'm not speaking to you every single day through Moses coming down to the cloud and going into the tent of meeting 
and all of that. There's going to be periods of time in which you're not going to feel God. You're not going to sense God working in your life. But don't forget, I was there for you. Don't forget that. It's so important. Moving on, in chapter 9, he goes through that section right before the passage of our focus in chapter 10. This is all introduction, by the way. And right after Moses recites Israel's rebellious history, he pleads with Israel to remember that the benefits that they were enjoying and those blessings and favor that they were going to experience in the land were not theirs because of something they did. I'm not good to you because you deserve it. I'm not delivering you from the people that I delivered you from because of the fact you deserve it or have done something worthy of it. It was not because of anything that they did. In fact, God rescued the nation of Israel from all of those things in spite of their behavior. And that's the same thing for us. Verse 9, chapter 9, verse 4, he says it this way, when the Lord your God drives them out, that's the enemies, their enemies and God's enemies, whenever God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise he swore to your ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verse 6 of chapter 9. Understand that the Lord your God, he says it again, he's like reiterating this. Understand that the blessings that you're receiving now and the blessings that you're about to receive and the goodness, any goodness that comes into your life, don't think it's because of some kind of intrinsic goodness on you or in your behavior. It's because I set my heart on the patriarchs. Understand that the Lord your God, verse 6, has not given you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. And so it's a warning about how you and I can avoid wandering into an attitude in which we don't fear the Lord anymore. He gives us two reasons. The first one is the idea is don't forget about me when things are going well. If we begin to forget about God when things are well, then the fear of the Lord begins to wane in our hearts, in our lives. The second reason that the fear of the Lord will begin to wane is because of the fact is that we forget our sinfulness and who we are and why he's done what he's done for us. We all in this room can thank Abraham for God even initiating this so that you and I can have fellowship with God with Jesus Christ. All of us, if we are all answered, we would know that none of us can deserve heaven. None of us can deserve God. In fact, all of us, if we deserve anything, we deserve condemnation and wrath. But it's because God put his love on his son and his son died in our stead that he took the penalty for the sins of me and you. And God can now extend grace to you and me because he exercised, he expiated his wrath onto his son. And the anger that he had towards you and towards me. He spent it on Jesus Christ. And he promises he had to make it easy for everybody else to be able to have access to this. He says, if you trust in me for eternal life, you have it. And that's the promise of the gospel. We don't deserve it. 
We don't earn it. And the moment we do, the moment we have the attitude of entitlement, we begin to no longer fear the Lord. And so I'm reminded of Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. And God says, I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. I hate it. Yes, he's your loving father. He's brought you in as his child, but he hates evil. And he hates it when you do it. He doesn't hate you, but he hates the evil that is, exists in your life. He hates the sin that's still there. He's offering you pardon. He's offering you grace. He offered you a second chance because of Jesus. But don't forget that he is holy and just and that he hates it. So again, in these first nine chapters, Moses is reminding God's people that there is a historical basis to have the fear of God and his awesome deliverance and protection during those wandering years. Um, then Moses, Moses is warning them about those attitudes that typically form later, right? Which will eventually lead one to losing the fear of God, namely forgetfulness and self-righteousness. Forgetfulness and self-righteousness will lead to a lack of fear of God. Forgetting where you come from, forgetting what God has done for you, forgetting who you are, even yet still under grace, that will cause a lack of fear of God. So now what? After laying out the basis and warning for the fear of God, what are they to do? And it's here that we pick up the conversation Moses is having with God's people. He asked a very important question. Look in chapter 10, verse 12, at the appeal or the grounds for nurturing the fear, the fear of God. What is the grounds for nurturing the fear of God? Verse 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in his ways to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? He's saying, in, in, in light of all this, in light of our past, in light of what everything has happened, in light of what I have done for you, and in light of the rebellion in which I have persevered with you, and I have forgiven, and I have cleansed, and I have covered the sin, and in light of everything that your parents have done, and everything that I'm still yet promising you, everything that I'm still giving you, how should you respond? He asks it in the form of a question. What does the Lord God have asking you? What is the appropriate response for somebody who's done this? What is the appropriate response? Except for you to fear the Lord. That's all he wants. To fear the Lord. And then he gives, he gives us three different things that must flow from the fear of the Lord. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, the next three things are almost impossible to have. So in order for you to fear the Lord, you then walk in his ways. Walk in his ways. It's impossible for you to walk in the ways of God. It's impossible for me to walk in the ways of God whenever I don't fear him. Because the ways of God is usually going to challenge me. It's always usually going to challenge my sense of wanting to elevate myself. It's going to usually challenge my tendency to want to do things my own way and to adopt the opinions and the perspectives of other people. And so unless I have a fear of God, if there is no fear of God in your life, then you're not going to walk in his ways. It's just the way it is. If you do not have, whether it be a, a terrorizing fear of God or whether or not you have a familial love for God that brings fear into your life, if you don't have the fear of God, then you will not walk. And so he's saying, fear me. The way you do that is by walking in my ways. Do walk, go where I go, stay where I stay, sit where I sit, do it the way I tell you to do it. Fear me. 
That's our greatest obligation there. To love him. You can't love God without fearing God. I don't believe you can. Can you? Can you do that? Can you love God without fearing God? I'm talking about biblical love here. I'm talking about the type of love that is willing to sacrifice for yourself, willing to sacrifice yourself for another. And so the the love that I have for God that comes from a, a, a healthy fear that I have of God as my heavenly father and the one who holds my life in his hand and he's forgiven me all these things. I cannot really love without that fear of God in my life. It's always a superficial love. It's a temporary love. It's, it's a love that's usually self-centered. But only the fear of God can bring that out. To love you and to worship the Lord, to worship that word, this literally means to lay prostrate, to worship it's just, I mean, what's the biggest expression? What kind of posture can you take before God who made the universe and the world? Is that you know, everybody that comes in contact with God, what do they do? They just hit the ground whenever it becomes a reality of who they're in front of and what's going on here. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. To keep the Lord's commands and the statutes I'm giving you for your own good. And he says, that's it. That's the main thing is love me. Then he moves on. And I'm reminded of this promise in Psalm 25, 14. God wants us to fear him. And in Psalm 25, 14, it says, the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him and he reveals his covenant to them. Fear of the Lord brings God's attention to give you insight into who he is and what he has for your life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It all begins there with the fear of God. If you don't have the fear of God, it's usually going to be temporary and superficial and self-centered, this fear. The secret counsel of the Lord. I never will forget years ago whenever I found this. It was like, oh, wow, that's like a promise you can claim. If I fear the Lord and love the Lord, I'm concerned about the things that He's concerned about, and I'm sensitive to the things He's concerned about, and I get on board with the things that He wants me to get on board with, He says that His counsel, His insight, sort of like being able to listen to Him, be able to whisper things into your ear almost about what His will is and His desires. I love, what is it, Romans 12, 2. It says, that, you know, we are to, I don't have it memorized there, got me on here, but it is that we are... Uh, by the mercies of God, uh, print your bodies a living sacrifice, holdable sexual to Him, reasonable form of service. Yes, that's a great passage there. So great. Verse 14. So, verse 14, the heavens. And so, this is, I love what He does here. And remember how long ago this was. You know, it was, this was approximately 1446 BC. So, this was, you know, 2,500 years ago almost, whenever he, he, he says this. And God, you know, and you have to understand that they believed in, in patron deities. They had, you know, regional deities. This God was in charge of this part of the land, and this God was in charge of this part of the land. And that's really what warfare was, is in the sense is that your God is fighting against my God. And so whatever God wins was the one who was more in control. And God kind of enters into that nonsense with these people, and he says this, he goes, the heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God. Now that was 
profound to these people because the way they understood is that these deities, certain deities were responsible for the sea, certain deities were responsible for the sky, certain deities were responsible for war. You know, you, you get the picture and God says, nope, I, the heavens and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God as, do the, as does the earth and everything in it. That was crazy talk back then. That is a crazy claim, but he backed it up. He goes, I'm, in, I'm over all of those things, yet, and I love this part, yet the Lord had his heart set on your ancestors and loved him. Yet, I had my heart set on this one little family that I was going to promise and bring you. Think about, think about the, the marvelous privilege you've been given that I own everything and I have condescended down to where you are and I've given you my attention like he's done. I've done to no other nation of the world. I've done it for you. That is such a marvelous thing. I mean, they didn't have James Webb Telescope either to get the full extent of what the awe and the power of the God that we worship, that he pays attention to you and he pays attention to me. And that's what he's doing here. He's going, look, I'm, I made all this, made this whole thing, but yet I have condescended down to give you special attention because of the fact that I've set my heart on Abraham. That should make you special. That should make you, what else? If, if you're not going to love me because of that, then what else are you going to do? If that's not enough for you to love me, then what is? I mean, that should really impact us today because of what we see with James Webb. Thank God for James Webb. It's telling us, whoo, this God that made this universe. That's so marvelous to me. And that's what he's doing. He said, look, I made the highest heavens and everything. If you're going to fear me, you need some proof. Well, look, I... The Lord had set his heart on your ancestors, verse 15, and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be sniff-necked any longer. I mean, what else would God have to, what would he have had to have done in order to earn our affections and our love? Such a marvelous thing. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods. Here it is. He said, you hear about all these other gods out there? God is God of gods. Elohim of Elohim. And Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and awe-inspiring God. In Hebrew, that word for awe is the same word that's translated as fear. It's a fear-inspiring God. I'm full of awe. I'm, I'm inspiring. And then he, he says this, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. And so this idea of fearing him, this can really impact us whenever we recognize that God doesn't really care who you are or who I am. He is on the side of justice. That's impactful. We will begin to stop fearing the Lord whenever we begin to think somehow that God is partial and he shows favoritism when it comes to justice. That will cause, that's a lack of fear, it's a lack of understanding about who God is. Whenever we do not keep that intention, His grace and His mercy, and that the reason you and I are able to experience the grace, again, it's not because you and I deserve it, it's because He exercised it on Christ, and so God is extending to you and me grace for the moment. For the moment, but don't make any mistake, Sin has been paid for. The penalty has been paid. Jesus has 
assuage the wrath of God because of what he did. But don't forget that he's a God of justice. The minute we begin to think that God doesn't care about the poor or the indigent, we begin to lose fear for God and about who he is. He says in verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, just like today. The fatherless don't, don't have it well in our country. They definitely didn't have it well then. But the widow and the fatherless, the Lord has a special place in his heart for them. And we have to be careful that we do as well. We need to fear the Lord in taking care of the poor, taking care of those who are vulnerable. We don't ever want to find ourselves moving off into the sense in which, well, if that person would just get a job, then they wouldn't always need the money. This person's poor because of this fact that they don't have an education. Maybe. That's probably true. But God exercised mercy on you. It's all a matter of degree there. The moment we do that, we lose fear for God whenever we do not see people the way he sees them. He executes justice, verse 18, and justice for the fatherless in the window, and he loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You also, verse 19, are to love the resident alien. Since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt, he's like, you know what it's like. And Jesus goes on down, and what he's doing, he's giving us the grounds for pursuing and maintaining and the fear of the Lord in our lives. Verse 20, you are to fear the Lord your God and worship him. Remain faithful to him and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awe-inspiring works your eyes have seen. Don't forget, don't forget that. Verse 22, your ancestors went down to Egypt, 70 people in all, and now the Lord your God has made you numerous like the stars of the sky. God keeps his promises to his people. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 11, love the Lord your God and keep his mandate and his commands. I love how Ecclesiastes says, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands because this is for all of humanity. So, the basis for us to fear the Lord is what he's done in our lives and what he's done through history. That is the basis for us to fear the Lord. The warning is, is we can't forget what he's done for us. We can't forget who he is and what he's done in our lives. And that we have every reason in the world to, to fear him because of who he is, because of his position as creator, his position as judge, his position as the one who makes all wrongs right. And so I thought about what are, you know, as we close and as we begin to think about application points to this, our life. So what are some of the signals or what are some of the signs in your life, and perhaps in my life, to where my fear of God is beginning to wane? I think that's a good question. One is a lack of contrition for God, of sin. Whenever you lack contrition for sin, that's a warning sign. Remember those times, perhaps, maybe not all of you, but I remember when those, those things were very sensitive in my heart. I remember another example. Was I, was, I used to listen to rock and roll. I still listen to rock and roll too, but I'm much more discriminatory about the lyrics now, right, of rock and roll. 
But I remember when I first got saved, I ended up throwing, literally threw away all my CDs. Back then we had CDs. So I remember I had Van Halen. I had, um, oh, I can't even remember. I had like the Scorpions. I had all of these, you know, heathen bands and they were, you know, all of this, but I was so sensitive to the Lord that I threw them away. And then it was later I began to understand, okay, the music, not now some of you may disagree with this, but the, it's not the music per se, it's the themes and stuff that I had to stay away from. The themes of the words and the music was really what was more damaging. And as I began to sort of refine my, my palate for what was good music or neutral music or bad music, then I was able to kind of, but in the beginning, man, I threw away everything, walking, you know, listening to AM radio, driving down the road, because I was so sensitive to that. But there is a sense as well as whenever you and I are watching a movie and it really gets into a raunchy scene or something that is celebrating a theme that is offensive to God and we laugh, right? And I'm not trying to be guilty. I'm not trying to like hack us down with guilt here. I mean, sometimes the writing is very creative and there's a lot of things that are funny, but then there's those ones too that are really defaming of God, right? And if I find myself, I laugh, but then I don't turn it off. I just keep going. I'm beginning to recognize that my fear of the Lord, because for you to think it's sin and to do it, it is a sin, right? The Bible talks about that. If the Lord is laying it on your heart not to do something or that this is an area, some, some people you don't drink, don't eat chocolate because for you, it's a sin to eat chocolate. I eat chocolate all I want, but for you, these personal convictions is a sin and being sensitive to those things. So a lack of contrition for sin is a sign that we're no longer fearing the Lord, right? Another one is a lack of compassion for people that don't look like us, talk like us, or live like us. That is a lack of fear of the Lord. That seems to be very clear. The book of James talks about that quite a bit. Don't show favoritism, right? Lord loves the poor. He loves those who are he shows compassion towards them. And then the other one, and we could do more, is an entitlement attitude about life. An entitlement attitude towards life. Is that somehow you think that you are where you are and you're doing what you're doing is because of something that you have done under your own strength. Remember, the Lord says that I am the one who gives you the power to make wealth. If you have money, great. Praise God. You work hard, but you could work hard all you want without the Lord's favor, and you'd be as poor as Denise and I were when we are poor as dirt. The Lord is the one who gives you the power to do that. But this idea of an entitlement attitude of life is that, that somehow what God has for me and what he's allowing into my life is not good enough. Sometimes you might be in a very difficult marriage and you look at all the other marriages who look great or maybe there's all kinds of things about it that's attractive and you kind of look at yours and it's kind of drab and you look over at her and she's looking over at you and it's just after 25 years, I don't do that with my wife, by the way. Sorry, babe, I don't do that. But there is a sense of entitlement. That's how men get in trouble. That's how women get in trouble in relationships there as well. The issue of money is how much money can you live on? How much money can you live on and yet still give, worship the Lord, and live a content life? If you feel like that the, your, your entire life and everything is about going and getting and making as much money as you can, there's nothing wrong with money, right? As long as money doesn't have you. But if you have an entitlement attitude toward the life, that will really squelch 
your fear of the Lord. And remembering who we are, just because we don't hear from God, we don't always feel God's presence, we don't want to turn God into the boyfriend God or the girlfriend God, right? To where he's only real if we feel him. Sometimes I just don't feel him, David. Does that mean he's not there? You know, sometimes the most constant things in your life are things that you never notice. Like, I mean, I don't see anybody, you know, Al, do you sit here and say over to your wife, oh, notice how beautiful, how perfectly the temperature is in this room. Isn't it just marvelous how the temperature in this room is just perfect? Nobody says that, right? Because the things that are most constant in your life are things that we don't really notice. And so God is like that in many ways. So I don't want to uh, ramble on, but you can think of other types of applications to this. So this is my prayer. I know you people as well, I know so many of you that this is your prayer as well. I don't want to fear man. I want to love the Lord and I want to fear the Lord. I want to have a healthy sense of fear for the Lord. I want to be sensitive to sin. I want to have compassion, the appropriate type of compassion for people. And I don't want to have an entitlement of light. Everything is a gift. Everything I have is by God's hands. And so I want to celebrate that and I want to live in that way. And what would that look like if our church lived that way? What would our relationships be like? What would be the ministry of this church? What would that look like if our church, that that's what we were about, is that we really did rally around the mission that we just recently put on paper. What if we actually had it living amongst us? Is that our mission is to equip and encourage people to think, live, and be like Jesus. If we saw that as our mission, as a whole. I want everything I do, everything I say, everything I, I produce, everything I give my attention to for God is to help others, to encourage them and equip them to think, live, and be like Jesus. Because as I'm helping them think and live and be like Jesus, I am thinking and living and being like Jesus. Because one day he's going to judge us. One day we're going to come before him and he's going to ask us what we've done with our life and what we've done with the grace and the forgiveness and the opportunities that he's given us. He's going to ask us what we have done with that. And we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, don't we? Well done, good and faithful servant. We all didn't start off right. You had this privilege. This person had this privilege. But with what I gave you, you lived a life that was appeal that was pursuing me and loving me and fearing me. Lord, help me to fear God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the example that you give us of your people, uh, the Israelites. And we can identify so much, Lord, with what, what, what they go through, what they went through in their life. And we see it in our own life. We don't have little gods, perhaps, Lord, that we've set on our mantles, but we do have other gods of pride and materialism and insecurity and all these other things where we do have those in our life. Help us, Lord, to love you more than we love those things. Help us, Lord, to fear you. Help us, Lord, to love you and to fear you in a way that pleases you. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.